0: A day after visiting Kyiv, President Biden makes a case for continued support for Ukraine and its battle against Russia.
1: He'll give that address in Warsaw today, near the same place he spoke almost a year ago. Then the war had just begun.
0: I'm Steve Inskeep with Leila Fado, and this is Up First from NPR News. On this day when Biden is speaking in Poland, Russia's President Vladimir Putin spoke to his nation and estimated 143,000 Russian soldiers have been killed over the past year. So what is next for Russia as another year of war begins?
1: And the Supreme Court hears a challenge to the legal immunity of social media companies. It's hard to sue them under a law known as Section 230. Now, parents claim social media played a role in their daughter's death. So stay with us. We'll give you the news you need to start your day. Russian President Vladimir Putin addressed a joint session of Russia's parliament in a closely watched State of the Union type speech today in Moscow. The address comes just days before the one year anniversary of the start of Russia's war in Ukraine and just hours before President Biden makes his own remarks about the war from nearby Poland. NPR's Charles Maines is in Moscow following along and joins us now. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. Okay. So this was a really anticipated speech. What did Putin say?
2: Well, you know, he just finished up moments ago. Uh, yeah. He really came out swinging against the West as we expected. Uh, he presented the war in Ukraine as he has previously, uh, as an existential struggle against uh, West, the West, uh, intent on dismantling the historical territory of Russia, namely in Ukraine. Uh, moreover, he argued that Russia had done everything to find a peaceful solution to this crisis that was brewing there, uh, but had been deceived by the West, uh, leaving Russia no choice but to go in. Uh, let's listen.
3: It's they had the war. And we
2: So here he says, uh, they are the ones who started this war. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're the ones trying to end it. Now, surprising here was just how much of the speech then drifted and really stayed focused on domestic issues. Uh, Really, the message, as we said, a kind of State of the Union speech, it was really that Russia's brightest days are ahead of it. Uh, But then he delivered a surprise at the end. Uh, Oh, by the way, Russia is suspending its participation in the new START nuclear arms treaty.
1: Okay, wait a second. Does this mean nuclear arms control is going to end?
2: Not quite. Uh, Putin insisted that Russia was suspending, not leaving, that's critical, uh, the New START Treaty, uh, due to actions by the U.S. and European nuclear powers, such as France and Great Britain. Uh, Now, talks between the U.S. and Russia to extend the treaty, uh, which runs out currently in February 2026, really had been stumbling of late. Uh, Russia had been linking progress on the talks to the U.S., really pulling back an an involvement in Ukraine. Uh, But certainly this takes us into uncharted territory. And moreover, uh, Putin has assigned his defense ministry to Say, uh, to prepare, not necessarily carry out uh, possible nuclear tests.
1: Okay, more uncertainty. What did Putin have to say given the impact of the war at home? What, did he, what was the domestic message?
2: Well, domestically, again, it was this message that, you know, our brightest days are ahead of us. And it's surprising when you see Putin suddenly dip into uh, thanking everyone uh, across Russian society for for basically solidarity, for coming together in support of the war. Um, In a sense, I think there's a sense that he really is trying to show... That, that this fight uh, continues with with uh, with the backing of the Russian people, and so we saw him one time and time again say that you know we're going to p- pledge for families, uh, help to the military families, we're going to build schools, we're going to revive our society, and also finally that that essentially sanctions had failed that uh, despite all these Western sanctions trying to tame Russia and and really kind of cut into its war, uh, making pay capabilities that Russia was still uh, thriving.
1: Now, the speech comes just hours before President Biden gives an address in Poland that will have a very different message. Um, it also comes just a day after his surprise trip to Kiev. What was the reaction in Moscow?
2: Yeah, you know, in Moscow, it really was seen uh, as both provocative in the sense that you had, of course, the president of the United States in Kiev, but also an affirmation, you know, that in Ukraine, uh, Russia is fundamentally engaged in a proxy war with the U.S. Uh, They've always presented uh, the U.S. as really the person to deal with if you want to find some kind of solution to this crisis.
1: NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thanks so much, Charles. Thank you. President Biden is in Poland today, where he'll be giving a speech at the site of the historic Royal
0: Castle. Biden spoke near this very same site last year at the start of Russia's war in nearby Ukraine. Now he's back and asserting that after a year of war, the cause of democracy has only grown stronger. NPR White House correspondent
1: Asma Khalid joins us now from Warsaw. Good morning, Asma. Good morning, Leila. Okay, so it's a bit of a strange split screen today. You have the president of the U.S. speaking on democracy in Poland, and then hundreds of miles away in Russia, Vladimir Putin is making a case for Russians to oppose this Western order, right?
3: It is, I will say, a bit of a disconnect, right? I mean, the White House believes that the world is at a critical moment in this big battle between authoritarianism and democracy. Biden himself last year in Poland described this as a fight between a rules-based order and brute force. And he sees Putin's invasion of Ukraine as part of that broader struggle. I just got off a call that White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan held with reporters, and he said that the president intends today to put the Ukraine war in a larger context that the president's speech will make the case that democracies have grown stronger over the course of the last year. Um, Biden is also expected to touch on Russian brutality in the war. And over the weekend, the U.S. formally accused Russia of committing crimes against humanity in a speech that Vice President Kamala Harris delivered mm-hmm. at the Munich Security Conference. You know, I will say it is noteworthy that Biden is returning to the very scene where he tried to rally the world for this fight about a year ago. Uh, you know, here we are back in Poland on the eastern flank of NATO and the war is continuing to rage on
1: yeah and a year in the u.s has provided a lot of support more than 112 billion dollars to ukraine what else is biden pledging at this point
3: well, when he went to Kyiv yesterday, he announced an additional half a billion dollars of military aid. The Biden administration is also announcing new sanctions against Russia. It is worth pointing out that Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky has asked the US for F-16s, but the Biden White House to date has been non-committal about sending those warplanes. You know, throughout this conflict, the White House has been cautious about supplying more military equipment that it fears could potentially escalate the conflict. But some experts and some lawmakers say that time is very critical. Uh, Yesterday, in fact, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham issued a statement praising Biden for making that secret trip to Ukraine. He said that it sent the right signal at the right time. But he also said words must be followed by powerful actions. And he called on the White House to provide Ukraine with advanced fighter jets.
1: Mm. Now, this trip, has been quite the statement. I mean, like you mentioned, Biden just showing up in Kiev in this surprise visit. Tell us a bit about how that happened and the message he was sending.
3: You know, it was a real logistical challenge. Uh, Biden took a train overnight from Poland into Kyiv. It was about some 10 hours each way. And you know, we're told from the White House that this plan for the trip was going on for some months. Uh, one key difficulty is that this covert trip was not like the ones that former presidents have taken into US war zones like Afghanistan or Iraq. You know, the US does not have boots on the ground in Ukraine. It doesn't control the critical infrastructure. So it was risky. Uh, and, and in attempt to reduce risk, the White House says it gave Russia a heads up that Biden would make this trip. You know, I will say fundamentally that trip to Ukraine, also the big speech here in Poland today, all of this is about sending a message to Russians and Ukrainians, of course, but it's also about sending a message to European allies and American voters at home that the U.S. will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes.
1: NPR's Asma Khalid in Warsaw. Thanks, Asma. Happy to do it. Today and tomorrow, the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments in two cases that could revolutionize the world of social media and the Internet.
0: The court considers a law that Congress enacted more than a quarter century ago. It's a law that shields Internet platforms from being sued for material that appears on their sites. This week's cases are asking the court to eliminate some of those protections, or all of them, and that could be a game-changer for American law, society, and business.
1: For more, here's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Good morning, Nina. Good morning. So, Nina, these cases were brought by families whose relatives were killed in terrorist attacks. Can you tell us more about why they're suing?
4: The first of these cases was brought by the family of Noemi Gonzalez, a 23-year-old American studying abroad. She was among 130 people killed in 2015 during coordinated ISIS attacks across Paris. And her family is suing YouTube, which is owned by Google. They allege that the company aided and abetted Ms. Gonzalez's death by recommending ISIS videos to people who might be interested in them, thus promoting ISIS recruitment and attacks. Okay. How does that involve Section 230, the law that's at issue here? Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act was passed by Congress when Internet platforms were in their infancy. And it drew a distinction between interactive computer service providers and other purveyors of information. So, for instance, while you and I and NPR can be sued for what we say and write as journalists, Section 230 instead treats interactive internet platforms differently. They're treated as passive conveyor belts of information, not publishers or speakers. And the lower courts have uniformly ruled that they're immune from almost all civil lawsuits for damages. Of course, at the same time, the law encourages social media companies to remove material that's obscene, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. Okay, but isn't that kind of a contradiction then? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, but this week's cases attempt to thread that needle. The Gonzalez family and others contend that Google, Twitter, Facebook, and other social media companies aided and abetted violations of the Federal Anti-Terrorism Act. They contend they did more than just provide platforms for communication. Rather, they were recommending terrorist videos to increase their ad revenue. Eric Schnapper, who's representing the families in this week's cases, notes that when Section 230 was enacted, the economic model for interactive websites was to get more subscribers. But now the economic model is very different. Here he is.
2: Now most of the money is made by advertisements and social media companies make more money the longer you're
4: online. And one way to do that, he maintains, is by algorithms that recommend other related material to keep users online. Google vehemently denies any such wrongdoing and says that the company has invested heavily in identifying and removing terrorist material. But the company says Congress was very clear in enacting 230, and if the law is to change at all, it should be done by Congress and not the courts.
1: NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Thank you so much, Nina.
4: Thank you.
0: And that's a First for Tuesday, February 21st. I'm Leila Falden, And I'm Steve Inskeep. Up First is produced by Julie Deppenbrock and David West. Alice Wolfley and H.J. Mai are our editors, and our technical director is Zach Coleman. Start your day here tomorrow.
1: And thanks for waking up with NPR. Your NPR station makes Up First possible each morning. Support them and support us at
0: donate.npr.org upfirst. For half a second, I thought you were going to say support them and support us at don't. I know. <laughs> don't do it. Run. Now I want a donut. You want a donut? Because I don't know what. Donut. Donate donut. Donate donut. Donate donut. Donate donut.